0: Open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And if you're taking notes this morning, you have a little outline there with some blanks on it. And uh, the title of this message is Be Imitators of God. We're called to be imitators of God. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll just be looking at these first couple of verses, and then we'll spend this time uh, together in God's Word. So let me read it to us, and then we'll dive right in. Paul writes this, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for preparing our hearts. I pray that you would teach us what you want us to learn in this text, about what it means to be an imitator of you, so that we might know and live out these truths for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the risk of telling you a story that may not be 100% true, allow me to share this story with you anyway, for its point is very well taken. The story goes like this. After a few of the usual Sunday evening hymns, the church's pastor slowly stood up, walked over to the pulpit, and before he gave his sermon for the evening, he briefly introduced a guest minister who was in the service that night. In the introduction, the pastor told the congregation that the guest minister was one of his dearest friends childhood friends, and that he wanted him to have a few moments to greet the church and to share whatever would be appropriate for the service. With that, the elderly man stepped up to the pulpit and began to speak. A father, his son, and a friend of his son were sailing off the Pacific coast, he began, when a fast approaching storm blocked any attempt for them to get back to the shore. The waves were so high that even though the father was an experienced sailor, he could not keep the boat upright, and th- the three were swept into the ocean as the boat was capsized. The old man hesitated for a moment, making eye contact with two teenagers who were, for the first time since the service began, looking somewhat interested in his story. The aged minister continued with his story. Grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. To which boy would he throw the other end of the line? He only had seconds to make the decision. The father knew that his son was a Christian, and also he knew that his son's friend was not The agony of his decision could not be matched by the torrent of waves. As the father yelled out, I love you, son, he threw out the lifeline to his son's friend. By the time the father had pulled the friend back to the capsized boat, his son had disappeared beneath the raging swells into the black of night. His body was never recovered. By this time, the two teenagers were sitting up straight in the pew, anxiously waiting for the next words coming out of the old minister's mouth. The father, he continued, knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, and he could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into an eternity without Jesus. Therefore, he sacrificed his own son to save his son's friend. How great is the love of God that He should do the same for us. Our Heavenly Father sacrificed His only begotten Son that we could be saved. With that, the old man turned and sat back down in his chair, and silence filled the room. Within minutes after the end of the service, the two teenagers were at the old man's side. That was a nice story politely stated one of the boys, but I didn't think it was very realistic for a father to give up his one and only son in order that the other boy could become a Christian. Well, you've got a point there, the old man replied, glancing down at his worn Bible. A big smile broadened his narrow face. He once again looked up at the boys and said, it sure isn't very realistic, is it? But I'm standing here today to tell you that that story gives me a glimpse of what God might have done to give up his son for me. You see, I was that father, and your pastor is my son's friend. Well, like I said at the beginning, I'm not sure if that story really happened exactly like it is read there. It's kind of one of those stories that goes around on the internet, but willing to take that risk, I think it does capture for us, however, the picture of the sacrifice of God. I may not know if that story was completely true, but I do know it's true that God so loved the world that he gave his son his one and only son, that he would die on a cross for you and for me, that if we would repent of our sin and turn to Christ, that we could be saved. I do know that Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I do know that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, 9 and 10, That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so I'm so thankful this morning for the love of the Father. I'm thankful that God the Father did indeed sacrifice God the Son to die in the place of sinners who would repent and believe. And if that doesn't touch your heart this morning, then it may be that you don't really understand the depth of God's love for you. Not only do we need to understand the love of the Father, but there's the love of the Son, which was equally given as a sacrifice, as a love gift to the Father, to claim you as his own, to buy you back, to redeem you, and to build you up into a relationship with him. I'm thankful for this love, but I'm also got to realize this morning that you and I are actually called to imitate this love. We're called to imitate the love of the Father. We're called to imitate the love of the Son. And so this morning, I I simply want to give you two headings that that contain the the two commands of the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. Again, the first command or the first heading is this. Number one in your outline, major heading, be imitators of God. Verse one, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, if you have been tracking with us, you now know that we just finished a seven to eight week series on what it means to be renewed in the spirit of your minds by putting off old sinful habits and replacing those with holy habits, with something that would be far better. And notice at the end of chapter four, last week we looked at the challenge to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now we move to chapter five where it says, therefore be imitators of God. In other words, chapter five is connected with chapter four. Chapter five, verse one says, therefore, in other words, now that we have considered our role in sanctification of putting off and putting on, we must be reminded that the source and the power to do sanctification in God's strength for his glory comes from God. It comes from the fact that these verses contain good theology. Even though we're in the second half of Ephesians, we've been talking a little bit about how the first half is all about the indicative, or what God has done for you through Christ. The second half is all about the imperative, what we are then called to do uh, because of, of who we are in Christ. Yet we still see that there's good doctrine in this practical portion of the book, and the good doctrine that we see this morning is simply the penal substitutionary death of Christ. This this word penal describes the penalty that you and I owe because of our sin. The Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. The word substitution reminds us that we do have a substitute. Someone who has died in our place. The word atonement means that Christ's perfect sacrifice has satisfied the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. And so these two verses are really teaching us, yet again, about the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though we are in what we call the imperative part of the book, the indicative still matter because the love of God that he has shown to us, we are called to understand that love and then to walk in that same type of love. So let's talk just for a moment if we can about this word, imitator. And we're called to be imitators of God. Some translations would use this word and translate it as followers. That we are to be followers of God. I believe imitate is the best word here, considering the original word is mimetes, where we get the word mimic from. In the New Testament, the word is used no less than six times and is always used in a conjunction with the idea of what we are to become. In other words, it's not describing something we are, it's describing something we are not, but something that we are to become. So we are not like God. But we are called to be imitators of God. That's what the word means. It's like, you're not this, but you're to imitate what this is because this is what God has called us to. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Hopefully you've heard that before. Follow me as I follow Christ. They were to imitate the apostle as the apostle imitates Jesus. Or the writer of Hebrews uses the same word in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Hebrews, 6, 11 and 12. He says, "And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises." So in other words, we're called to imitate the Apostle Paul. We're called to imitate other strong believers that demonstrate for us what it's like to live a life of dependence on the Lord. And so we're called here in Ephesians 5.1, though, not to imitate a person. We're called to imitate God. Now How can that be? How could it be that the everlasting God who has always been and always will be declares to us this morning through this passage, the living word of God, that we are to be imitators of him? Well, before I answer that question, let's make sure we know who it is that we're imitating. So just a quick reminder of theology proper, if we can. Your first blank there is let's talk for just a moment about the supremacy of his character. I mean, we're talking about the God of the universe who knows all things. And so number one there is his knowledge is incomparable, Turn with me, if you're able to, to Psalm chapter 139. We're going to see here about God's knowledge, which is incomparable. You know this Psalm full well. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind it before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Just in those six verses, there are seven times where there is some concept of the word knowledge used, whether it's the word known or the word discern or the word search. The idea is that God knows us, He knows us full well. He knows us better than we know ourselves because he created us. And so this God that we serve knows everything about you. His knowledge is unattainable. He is the creator God. He knows all things. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every word that you've ever spoken. He knows every thought that you're thinking, even at this moment. He knows it all. Not only Is his knowledge incomparable? But secondly, we know that Scripture teaches that his holiness is impenetrable. His holiness is impenetrable. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We're reminded here, Isaiah sees a vision of God. He sees a vision of God who could have been a theophany, even Christ here, that we understand in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am ruined, or I am undone, the word is. For woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This passage simply reminds us that our God is a holy God. The seraphim, literally translated, the burning ones, fly around the throne of God and for day and night, for all eternity, cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This God is not like us. He's separate than us. He's different than us. And yet we're called to imitate him. We also know the Bible teaches not only is God all-knowing, not only is he perfectly holy, but number three, his majesty is incomprehensible. Psalm chapter eight, we love to listen to how the psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you establish strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I love to think about that psalm when I'm out at night Maybe just sitting down, looking up into the heavens where you can see the moon and the stars, which are screaming out the glory of God. And we realize his majesty and his power to create the heavenly bodies that we see by day and by night. And yet this is the same God that created us, that he desires a relationship with us. How majestic is our God? And so if these three things, in a sense, summarize that God is all-knowing, Which means he's omniscient, that God is all good and all holy, which means he's omnibenevolent, and if God is the majestic creator, which means that he is omnipotent, then let me ask you this morning how exactly are we to imitate God? How in the world can we imitate one who is eternal, one who is creator? one who is perfectly holy, one is who ma- is majestic in every way. Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes on this text, quote, is he seriously asking men and women like ourselves living in a world like this, surrounded with temptations, harassed by the devil, with sin and evil and unworthiness within us to be imitators of God? Is it possible Martin Lloyd-Jones asks, well, the answer is yes. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do. Inspired by the Holy Spirit in God's inerrant word is not a mistake here somehow made in Scripture, but rather a direct command for you and I to imitate God. How could this be? Well, we've got to understand that this is basically fulfilled through the gospel. It's fulfilled through coming into an understanding of the new covenant in the New Testament. The best I can tell, nowhere in the Old Testament are we ever called to imitate God. We're called to be holy like he's holy, but we're never given such a challenge that we would somehow attempt to imitate God. And yet through the New Testament, through the person of Christ, we now see that this is not only a bodacious command that somehow we would be like God, but there's a sweetness. That's your next blank. There's a sweetness to this command. There's actually, it's not like God's telling us something that we could never do in order to chastise us. But rather, he's telling us exactly what he wants us to do. And then he shows us how it's by, the end of verse 2, being a beloved child. You imitate God by being a Christian. It's by being a child. The word child here literally refers to toddlers. Those who would be young children looking to their father that we are beloved children. It's the word agape in the verb form. It's God agape in you. He loves you. He set his affection upon you with this unconditional love. In classical times, this word beloved particularly referred to any child who was an only child to whom his parents had devoted all their love to this one and only child in other words, because the child had received so much love, the child had the security of being loved and thus was contented. God loves his son, and then God loves every adopted son of God with this same type of agape love. In fact, 1 John talks a lot about what it means to be in the beloved. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There's a picture of imitation. We're beloved children by Almighty God, and when Christ appears, we shall be like him. It happens again through the gospel. So how is it possible that we are called to be imitators of God. I've got three reasons for you to think about. Number one, it's because we've been created in his image. You and I, as human beings, have actually been created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're talking here about the Imago Dei. The fact that you're created in God's image, that you and I are called to be image bearers. Now, this is true of every human being. Even those who fight for ISIS were created in the image of God. It belongs to every human being. The idea that you have a soul and that you have an opportunity to reflect the glory of God. But we must read on and understand that we also, number two, have been adopted as his children. You see, the difference between you and one who is without Christ is that you have actually been beloved by God. Every unbeliever sits under the judgment of God, but every believer sits under the beloved love of God as an adopted child. Galatians chapter 4 verses 3 through 7 talk about the beauty of the doctrine Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How can you imitate God? Well, you're created in the image of God, but you were recreated in Christ. You were adopted into his family. Through the love of Christ, you now have the capacity not only to reflect the fact that God exists, but that he exists in the gospel form to save all who would call upon him through repentance and faith. Another reason that we can imitate God is this. Number three, we have been loved in an incomprehensible way. This reveals for us motive to actually attempt somehow to imitate God because we can't get over the fact that he loved us so. Turn back to chapter 2 of Ephesians. You know full well that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know what verses 1 through 3 tell us? You were on your way to hell. And you deserved it. You were following, I was following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. We were under the wrath of God. We deserved eternal punishment. And yet we read in verse four of chapter two but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's this love of God that we can't stop thinking about. It's this love of God that changes us and transforms us and actually gives us the ability to have some kind of desire to imitate our creator, to imitate Christ, to imitate this eternal God, because we have been created in his image. We have been adopted as his sons and daughters. We have been loved with a transcendent and a transforming love. There's a story about Alexander the Great, the great conqueror of Greece, who discovered a coward in his army, who was also named Alexander. And he told the soldier, renounce your cowardice. Or renounce your name. In other words, he didn't want somebody who was supposed to be imitating him, by at least the name by which he was called, to be a coward. And in a similar way, God does not desire that we would be anything but like him. God desires that we would be imitators of the glorious God of the universe. Now, obviously, there are attributes of God which we can clearly imitate to some degree. We call those communicable attributes. There are other attributes of God called his incommunicable attributes that we are not to imitate lest we try to become God, literally. So the idea here is it's understood that we imitate God so much as far as we can by looking specifically at how he relates to his son and how he relates to you as a sinner, the context there being that we would love one another and forgive one another as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so in the same way, we transition now to the second imperative of verse two, which is this, not only are we called to be imitators of God, we are called to walk in love. And this command to walk is a present imperative, which simply conveys the customary idea of to make this your habit. Like it used to be your habit to sin against God all day, every day. Now it's your habit to bring glory to God all day, every day by living a life that would glorify Him, a life that would actually imitate Him, so that when people see you, they see the Father. We certainly have a, a perfect example to learn from, his name is Jesus, and that's why verse 2 says, and we're to walk in love as Christ loved us. So your next blank there is as Christ loved us. That's the example that we follow. Christ, he loved us. And this word love, again, is the word agape, which signifies that it's, it's, it's about, about glorifying him, the desire to find your satisfaction in loving someone else sacrificially. Agape is not about loving self first. And others let, let, let happen to them what happens to them. No, agape is like, let me love others, and I find my joy and satisfaction in loving you and in sacrificing for you. And this isn't the kind of love that would say, What have you done for me lately? But agape love is the kind of love that says, What can I do for you today? What could I do? How could I be inconvenienced so that you could be blessed? This is the kind of love Christ shows to us. We see your next blank there. Number one, he shows us that there's no greater love than this. Certainly that's part of what we mean here about Christ loving us. There's no greater love than that kind of love, that exact kind of agape love. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love that you and I are also to have. Number two, because we read this, no doubt that we should do the same for others. If Christ did this for us, and we're called to imitate God as beloved children by walking in love as Christ loved us, then we're called to do the same thing. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is not about infatuation. Love is not about what, how it makes me feel. Love is not only subjective. Love is a decision to follow and obey and honor God. And as you do that, I believe God will give you the feeling of joy and satisfaction and happiness in your holiness. In other words, it's not just duty. While it sometimes it feels like duty, it's as we dutifully obey that he fills our heart with delight. And we're looking for that perfect balance of I'm going to obey no matter what. And I'm going to pray that God would increase my love and my satisfaction because as I walk by the fruit of the Spirit, I experience all the joy that God has for me. This is what God's called us to love as as Christ loved. Not only that, but B says that we see here that it's as Christ gave himself up for us. That's what we're talking about. Loving is giving. Loving is not getting more. Loving is giving more. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so consider how the father gave. Number one, Jesus was crushed at the will of the father. Isaiah fifty three ten. yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God the father willed to give his son by his being crushed on the cross for you and I because the father gave up his son for you. And for me, but it's not just the father giving up his son, and somehow the son was not willing or wanting to go along with it. I mean, how many of you guys have kids? And when maybe some company comes over to your house, you look at your kids and you say, "Now look at Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and tell them hello, and tell them that uh, you're glad they're here." And the kids like, "Hello, thanks for coming over," you know. And you're like, "How do you feel as the guest?" Are you like, "Oh, I feel so honored." I mean. You kind of feel like, well, I'm grateful that the parents are trying to teach their kid how to be nice, but obviously the kid did not will to do that. That's not what we have going on here with the gospel. The father willed to crush the son, but the son also wanted to be crushed. It's an amazing thought to think about how not only was Jesus crushed at the will of the father, but number two, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 11, and 15 Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus voluntarily, from both his divine character and his human conviction, chose to willingly lay down his life. It was the will of the Father, but it was also the will of the Son. He gave himself voluntarily out of a great love for you that matched the love of the Father. Not only this, but we read in Galatians 2.20 that number three, Jesus gave himself up for me. He gave himself uh, up for me. There's a personalization here of a singular pronoun that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in a life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me here. By the, it's the Son of God, right? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Jesus did for sinners that's what Jesus did for you and I when we were unlovely, when we were untouchable, when, when there was nothing desirable about us. He loved us in this way. Not only did Jesus give himself up, but we also see here, the next blank is that as Christ became a costly sacrifice. Look at verse 2 again. It goes on to talk about how he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So let me talk for just a moment about this offering and this sacrifice. We know that this is a costly sacrifice. Why is it costly? Because it was his life. It wasn't like he gave up something else. He gave up his very life. He gave his life as an offering. This is Old Testament uh, wording here. This idea of an offering can be seen clearly in the book of Leviticus, There's five different offerings listed in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. The first one is this. There's a burnt offering that was commanded by Moses for the priesthood to carry out this burnt offering. And Old Testament theologians say that the burnt offering shows Christ's total devotion to God. This is where the meat would be put on the altar and it was not to be eaten. It was consumed in its entirety. It's a sweet aroma unto the Lord. It was completely consumed on the altar just as Christ's life was completely consumed on the cross. His life was completely spent for God's glory. This is what it means to be a sacrifice or an offering. And God says, it's a beautiful smell. It's a fragrant aroma. It's a pleasing smell to the Lord. Not only is there the the burnt offering, number two, there's a grain offering Some would call this a meal offering in chapter two of Leviticus. The grain offering was known as the meal offering, and it shows Christ's complete perfection. So the first one shows Christ's complete devotion. This one is a perfect meal, worthy for God to consume that would satisfy his wrath. So there's the idea of devotion here, the idea of perfection here. Number three, there's the peace offering. Leviticus chapter three talks about the peace offering which shows Jesus as the ultimate peacemaker, making peace between a holy God and sinful man as the only worthy mediator you understand all the sacrifices of the Old Testament do not satisfy God's wrath. It's not the blood of bulls or goats that sets you free of your sin and it's a pleasing aroma in God's nostrils. It's rather the foreshadowing of the one who would come, the Lamb of God, who would offer his life as a ransom for many and that this would be a pleasing aroma to God. And so we read next, as Christ's sacrifice was a fragrant offering. This sacrifice was costly It's something that that was given in a sense of being burned and and eaten and and offered peace to. But the idea is it's a fragrant offering. Number one, there's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And all of those references you see on your notes in Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, it keeps saying that it's a pleasing aroma to God. There's a pleasing aspect to this. There were two more offerings that were also given in chapters four and five. Those are called sin offerings. These were not described as having a pleasing aroma because they were offerings for sin, which is a stench in God's nostrils. But these first three, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and this peace offering, all are described as having a pleasing aroma to God. So we see here these offerings of Leviticus, which were to foreshadow Christ, are a pleasing aroma to God. We see Christ as he comes and he gives his life for us as a sacrifice is also a pleasing fragrance in offering to God. But then we also see that we are also to be this same aroma that was foreshadowed in Leviticus that was actually lived out by Christ 2,000 years ago should still be the smell that we give off today. I'm talking about number two here. We are to be the aroma of Christ to God. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to another a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things your life doesn't smell frequently to God, it means you don't know Christ. If you know Christ, just like Christ smelled is how you smell. You're to smell like Christ. You're to have this same aroma by living a sacrificial life, by loving like he loved. In fact, the end of that 2 Corinthians 2, 16 passage where he says, who is sufficient for these things? I think that's similar to the question of how in the world can I imitate God? How can we imitate God? Who is sufficient that your life would actually be a fragrance to lead others from life to life? How can it be that we are imitators of God and have this sweet aroma? It's by living a life of sacrifice. It's by living a life that that sacrifice brings you great joy because you realize that without Christ's sacrifice for you, you would be condemned. But instead, you've been spared. You have the privilege of, your whole life being an aroma to God. Robert Faulkner tells a story of his witnessing among destitute people in a certain city and of reading them the story of the woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And While he was reading, he heard a loud sob and looked upon a young, thin girl whose face was disfigured by smallpox. After he had spoke a few words of encouragement to her, he said, uh, she said, rather, will he ever come again? The one who forgave the woman? I've heard that that he will come again. Will it be soon? He could come at any time. But why do you ask, Faulkner replied. After sobbing, Again, uncontrollably, she said, Sir, can't he wait a little while? My hair isn't long enough yet to wipe his feet. What a great reminder of we want to have that fragrant aroma of loving Christ. Oh, that we would walk in this kind of love, the kind of love which Christ had for us, that we would be a fragrant aroma to him. Well, a couple of take-home questions to ponder. How is it possible that God could ever command finite mortal men to imitate infinite immortal God? I mean, we ought to ponder that statement to be imitators of God. And it ought to cause us to stop and think, how could this be? The answer is because of the gospel. Number two, why did Jesus lay down his life for deaf, mute, and blind sheep who have all gone astray each his own way. We were not lovely. And yet, Jesus laid down his life to make us part of his fold. Number three, how can you live a life of love toward God and toward others so that your life would be a pleasing aroma to God? This week, seek to be imitators of God in your marriage, which is supposed to be a picture of Christ and his love for the church. In your parenting, as you represent the Father in so many ways to your own children, with your friends at your workplace, this week, if God were to smell you, would it be a fragrant, pleasing aroma as you seek to be an imitator of God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this text, which is uh, such an encouragement to our souls. And yet, at the same time, we acknowledge that we are unable in and of ourselves to ever have the audacity to imitate you. If it were not commanded here, we would never even think of it. Yet, you commanded it. And because of Christ, we can do it in your strength for your glory. I pray that you would teach us what it means to imitate God, what it means to walk in love, that this week, in every way, And with our words, with our actions, that we would be a pleasing aroma to you. Thank you for reminding us of these truths. Help us to learn them so that we can live them this week. In Jesus' name, amen.